to Bill Humble on the 6th of November, 89. Um, <clears throat> I was born in 1911, April the 14th, at a place called Carcroft in Yorkshire, near Doncaster. Uh, my father, at that time, was sinking the coal mines around Doncaster, and um, he was a, basically a mining engineer. Um, <coughs> I went to school uh, at Sewing House in Broadstairs as a prep school, and then I went uh, to Repton for four years. Um, my mother decided that I ought to go to university, and so I was sent to Cambridge in theory to learn um, do a, an engineering tripos, which was far beyond my reach. In, when I was about 16, I had my first flight in an Avro, I think it was 504K, with a Lerone um, um, Monosopap. And it was really that which sparked off my desire to fly. I loved it. So when I got to Cambridge, I found that Arthur Marshall had, um, was just starting a flying club up in a field near his father's house. Uh, I joined and I was the second member. The first one was de Brunet, who invented, I believe, Redux, which stuck the mosquitoes together later. He was at that time uh, a tutor, I think, at Trinity. Uh, the instructor was P.P. Gray, who'd come from de Havilland's, who was taking a course on some colonial operation as he was going to the colonial service. I only lasted at Cambridge for a year because basically I flew, played golf and didn't do any work. And so my father then decided that uh, he put me down the mines and that was to be my job in life. I um, started operations, uh, I started working as a fitter's mate at Markham's Works in Chesterfield, where I stayed for a year on heavy engineering, things like winding engines, tunneling machinery and all that jazz. And then I went down Markham Pit uh, and uh, Ireland Pit as a sort of student uh, trainee. And, um, of course, to get into the mining world, you had to do at least five years underground uh, in, on various jobs. So, uh, really, I, it took me six years uh, before I could sit for the exam of being a mining engineer. And anyway, you couldn't be a manager before you were 25. And, um, which I surprisingly passed. And so I received a certificate from the Board of Trade to say that I, that I was competent to run a coal mine. During the whole of this period, the one thing I really wanted to do was to fly. I was a fairly lucky chap and was able to buy my own aeroplane with the help of the bank manager, um, which I bought in 1935, 
it was a Speed 6 Hawk with a Gypsy 6 engine in and did about 182 miles an hour. I used it in the King's Cup and various other races at that time. How much did it cost you in those days? Do you remember? It, yes, it cost a thousand pounds. In the winter, of, uh, at the end of '35, I took it down to Phillips and Pies at Reading and had the decking lowered. The cockpit had a sort of closed canopy over it, sliding canopy. And uh, I then made the cockpit open, but fitted the uh, windscreen and head fairing very closely to my uh, very close to my head, so that I then became an open cockpit, as it were, and uh, lowered the decking and got a bit more, a few more miles an hour out of it. Um, I raced it in uh, several races in 1936, including the King's Cup, um, various other races, and won. South Coast Trophy, London Newcastle race, and was quite well placed in the King's Cup, Isle of Man race, and and some others which I rarely forget about. How many hours did you have on your logbook at this time when you started racing? I should think probably about two hundred. Um, as a means of um, getting a bit more flying without paying for it. I joined 504 Squadron at Nottingham in about 1930. Um, they were then flying, uh, the trainer was the Aero 504 in, uh, Aero 504K with, wait a minute, I've got to get it right, Aero 504N with um, a Lynx engine in, I think, and the main aircraft we flew were Hawker Horsleys, which was my first shot at Hawker aircraft, uh, which had a big Rolls-Royce Condor in and was a sort of uh, single-engine bomber of the day. Um, I found that trying to become a miner and squadron life, which the Special Reserve demanded, was not compatible, so I, ha so I decided I must leave. And I went on to uh, organization which was going in those days called the Reserve of Air Force Officers. So I became an RAFO, so I'd been a serving officer, which I never had been. Um, How did you earn your living when you left the mines then? I continued to mine after uh -huh. 39. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, I got paid while I was training as a miner, and living basically was pretty cheap in those days. But as I say, I was a lucky chap, so I had a bit of my own, and uh, so I was able to um, afford the aeroplane as well. The um, RAFO, uh, were the, the station I went to to do my reserve training was Bruff, and I flew B2s there, and a very early aeroplane called the Blackburn Dart, which was a sort of torpedo thing designed in 1919. It did about 60 miles an hour, flat out, and stalled at about 30 miles an hour. So if there was a strong wind blowing, they all had to go into the hangar, otherwise they got blown over. Um, in, uh, when war broke out in 1939, I was called up 
and posted to 11 FTS at Shawbury as an instructor. When I arrived there, uh, I knew that there was going to be some action taken by the colliery company to get me back. And so the first thing I did when I saw the commanding officer was to tell him that it all came, it, he must put up a tremendous resistance to keep me um, at Shawbury because I was of vital importance to the war effort. Um, I don't think he swallowed the idea very much. Anyway, I did about ten weeks at Shawbury, uh, doing putting uh, new pilots, uh, trans at least um, putting them on hearts after their initial training on Tiger Moths and initial night landings and um, basic blind flying, etc., etc. Uh, after ten weeks, I was called to the CIA's office and he had a telegram in his hand and he said, Look, I'm frightfully sorry, but I can't do anything about this. You've got to go back to the mines immediately. And sure enough, he showed me the telegram and it said, Return humble to the mines forthwith. And that was that. I was back in civilian clothes and on my way to Yorkshire. Uh, nothing, uh, the, the initial at the early part of that time, anyway, there was not much of a war going on. It was fairly uh, uh, quiet. But in uh, 1940, of course, uh, things hotted up. And part of being a mining engineer was that you had to go down the pit. You didn't sit on the top. And I used to go down every day. Uh, when I came up, there'd always been some ghastly thing had occurred, Dunkirk, and um, Belgium had been over and Hull had been over and and the Germans were running all over the place. And so I used to ring up the managing director of the company and say, look, you've got to let me go back, otherwise you'll lose the war, which I think was a slight over statement of my own capability. Anyway, in August of that year, I came up, I don't know what had happened, the Battle of Britain wasn't going too well. Uh, or it didn't seem to be going too well, and so I got on to him again, and he finally relented and gave me a letter saying that he'd released me. I think he was very glad to get rid of me. Anyway, I hopped down to London as hard as I could, went to the Ministry and showed them the letter, and I said, I'm back, you'll be all right now. I don't think they were terribly impressed. They then, I then said, well, what can you, what can I do? I'd like to go to a fighter squadron. And they said, um, no, no, not for you. You can go to Sealand as an instructor. And that was my posting. Can I just interrupt you there a second? Yeah. I think I was due at Sealand in September. And as a sort of swan song, I went down and picked up Willie Wilson, who was then chief test pilot farmer and was a great friend of mine, and said, let's go up to London and have a bit of a party. We left Farnborough and drove up through Windsor Great Park. There was an ME 109 on its belly in the park. And then we carried on to Langley Aerodrome near Slough, where Willie suggested we should go in and have a cup of coffee with um, George Bullman, who was then chief test pilot. Um, we, had a, uh, we had a cup of coffee, and were talking generally, and they, we found that 
They'd just lost two pilots, Dick Rennell, who'd been shot down, and Russell Stracy, who'd been killed in a forced landing in a hurricane. Um, George turned to me and said, uh, do you fly? And I said, yes, I've flown a bit. And um, he said, well, would, we're a bit short of pilots at the moment. Would you like to come here as a test pilot? And I think I'd, I remember the film of Clark Gable in Test Pilot, and they seem to have, test pilots seem to have a fairly good time in life. And they got all the girls, drank themselves into a frenzy, and got a lot of nice flying in. So I said, good God, I'd simply love to come here. But I'm actually a mining engineer. I'm a sort of coal miner. And George said, oh, you're just the sort of chap we want. And so I said, fine, well, if you'll get hold of the ministry and um, divert me from to Langley from my posting at Sealand, I would simply love to come. Can I just recapitulate on your flying experience at this time? because you'd been, if you like, I suppose, a private pilot for a number of years. You'd got some hours in, in the reserve. Um, and on my own airplane. Yes. Uh, what sort of flying experience could you offer them in terms of hours and types? And uh, I suppose by then I'd got about a thousand hours in. Mm -hmm. um, my types were a Blackburn Dart, a Hawker Horsley. Um, I don't think I'd even... Had you flown a hurricane at that time? No, no, no. I'd flown a heart. Never flown a hurricane, never flown anything. Um, the odd moth and blackburn bluebird and various odd light aeroplanes. I don't think I'd even flown a twin at that time. They were all single engine. Mm. And I was a coal miner and um, I had a certificate of competency. <laughs> and uh, I then uh, anyway, George having, he was a jokey-pokey chap in a way, and his, his, remark, his sort of whole attitude during the interview was concerned. Anyway, early in September, I rang up um, George again at Langley and said, well, I'm on my way. This was September 1940? This was September 1940. And he said, fine. And so I got in my car and drove down to Langley, and they said, right, well, you're a test pilot. And so I said, fine, thank you very much. What do I do? And um, I said, well, I haven't flown anything at all for the last 10 months uh, when I, since I left Shawbury. And so I said, I'd like to do something in whatever you've got that's sort of small. And there was a witness straight there. So I took that off and did a few hours on that. And then I said, all right, well, I'm ready for a hurricane, which they gave me. And I took it off. It didn't seem so terrible and anyway I got away with it I didn't uh, mess it I didn't crash it or anything and from then on I started testing hurricanes I knew absolutely nothing about testing airplanes at all but if you keep reasonably quiet uh, you get away with it and I listened to other people um, anyway it was production testing so all one was really doing was seeing whether the airplane worked as it should that there was no vibration from the propeller which there was very often and that the thing flew level, uh, which it didn't. So you had to adjust that with cord on the ailerons. And after a time, you got surprisingly accurate. You used to land after your check flight, and the flight uh, people, the ground people, came up with a tin of blue and some 
um, string sewn inside a bit of fabric and you'd put up three fingers or four fingers or two fingers which meant three inches, four inches or two inches or whatever and they used to put that on the aileron and off you went again you, never, you didn't stop the engine at all, didn't get out went off again and one got surprisingly accurate in judging the um, amount of cord you want but it was a fairly simple job this, this, can I just um, yes. get you to clarify this? You, you added, didn't you get the full movement of the ailerons when it came off the line? What was, you know? No, you got the, you got, they simply, if you flew them hands off, they'd, yes. they'd fly one wing low. Uh -huh. And uh, you had to put a bit of tape on the offending aileron yes. uh, to force it, force it down, and then you got the, the thing flew level. Otherwise, if you got a bad, one badly in trim, I mean, you might go up to 10 inches of cord. And um, the um, I mean, there was nothing to it really. How did you actually tie the aileron down then, in the physical sense? You I mean, didn't tie it down. How do you mean tie it down? Uh, I mean, you you had to tune it out out of flushness with the wing. That's surface, right. Yes, you? yes. You simply you simply gave it a bit of uh, the cord, pushed the uh, the aileron down, and the wing came up, and the thing flew level. Um, you're talking about cord, is uh, just cord, a, 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 a piece, of a, a piece of rope, yeah, a piece of rope. Yeah. And um, I had, I think, during my time with the production flight at Langley, I probably flew a, a, a figure in my mind is 460 hurricanes, but I let's say 400, so that I don't overdo it. Um, most of them behaved themselves fairly well. I think I had a couple of forced landings in that time. Uh, through engine failure, but in those days there were so many aerodromes about the place that you very seldom had to do a wheels-up landing. That came later. The um, at Langley, on, at the other end of the tarmac, was the experimental flight where the typhoons lived and were being tested. Ken C. Smith was then the uh, Philip Lucas is number two. George was the chief test pilot. Philip Lucas was really number two. And third in line was Ken C. Smith. Well, I was very... Uh, I, I loved flying, and I wanted to fly, so I used to walk off down to the experimental department and talk to Ken, who was... They were all very friendly, and um, said, you know, if you've ever got a job that uh, you want doing that's surplus to requirements, as far as you're concerned, I'd love to do it. And so I started then flying typhoons on odd jobs. And um, I got, as there were more typhoons arrived in the experimental department and there was more flying, I started to wangle my way into the experimental department until I finally was um, doing nothing else but experimental flying. I still was basically a coal miner, though, you've got to remember. Mm. I had a valid driving license for a car as well, but absolutely no qualifications to be a test pilot at all never had any training, and I don't think there was much training before the war on it, except probably at Martyr. You are, you are selling yourself short a little bit here. Surely you must have had a great sense of airmanship to be able to, um, for instance, fly your racer well, with a very minimum number of, of, of basic hours. I mean, how long did it take you to go solo, for instance? Oh, it took me a normal sort of eight hours eight at, at yeah. Marshalls. Actually, for the first flight, we went off to... Norwich to do the first flights because mm. it was a bigger aerodrome. The field at, at Cambridge was pretty small. But you must have must have inbuilt air, air, airmanship. No, I possibly. But the whole thing was I, I just loved flying. I just wanted to fly, 
and um, I didn't want to be a coal miner at all. But I thoroughly enjoyed being a coal miner. I was a coal miner. I enjoy what I'm doing. Um, but anyway, when I, I was... I never had any... During the whole of the time I flew, I, which was, I suppose, from 1929 to about 1952, uh, when I was flying myself, um, I never hurt myself. You occasionally scratch yourself on a piece of bent tin or a wire in the cockpit. Hurricanes were pretty rough in those days. But that was about the only damage I ever did. You never had to hop out? I very nearly had to hop out once. Um, I was up at about um, uh, 20,000, 30,000 feet in a hurricane. And um, I suddenly noticed that the oxygen gauge was showing zero. And sheer terror gripped me, so I shoved the nose down. And um, the engine overran. The, the constant speed unit didn't seem to work. Anyway, um, there was a hell of a bang from the front end, and the cockpit filled up with smoke. Um, the bang being the fact that the, con the some of the connecting rods had gone through the bottom of the crankcase, and uh, there was oil all over the place. And I thought, oh God, we're on fire. And I then opened the hood um, and thought, well, I'd better bail out. And it seemed an awful long way down, and it was going to be an entirely new experience, and I didn't seem to be ready for it. And then I uh, started to think things over a bit, and I thought, well, they've not seen any flames, there's only smoke so far, so I'll hang on a bit. The, you know, there's no emergency, hurry to get out. And sure enough, of course, the smoke died off after a time. I think I was down about 20,000 feet by then. Langley was there, as large as I, so I put the wheels down and force landed on Langley. Um, anyway, that's going back a bit. I, no, flying, I just loved back it. Back to your typhoons, anyway. Back now. to the typhoons. The... Um, uh, I then, uh, having wangled my way into the experimental department, um, George Bowman then ceased to be chief test pilot, Philip Lucas went up to chief test pilot, Ken was number two, and then I virtually became number three in the line. So, uh, all went on happily with the typhoon, which incidentally uh, was a pretty bloody aeroplane. It was rough. Um, it really was a bit of an old bag. The um, Ken and I, one mo uh, one morning, we, we we had a typhoon with some clipped wings, the idea being to try to increase the rate of row. And I took uh, a standard typhoon up, and Ken took the clipped wing up, and we tried to compare, do comparative rate of row by doing sort of dogfights. And... Um, I don't know whether we learnt anything or not, but anyway, on the way down there was a lot of um, fluffy uh, cumulus cloud about, well broken, and a tremendous amount of turbulence, and we came diving down uh, through this cloud at about 400 miles an hour, and the um, bumps were terrific, I mean, it really were bang, bang, bang. Anyway, we landed, and um, as we were walking over to lunch, because it was then lunchtime, Ken said to me, I don't know how these things stick together. And uh, coming down through that turbulence, and I said, well, anyway, they seem to all right. 
but it was pretty rough. Ken did a job on the machine I was flying in the morning, and this was, I think if I remember, the top of the canopy was removed. Incidentally, the typhoon in those days, you got in it rather like you got into a car. There were doors, and it was a thoroughly claustrophobic cockpit to be in. And for some reason, we decided to take the top off the, or the project office decided to take the top off the cabin. Um, and Ken went up to see what effect it had. Um, the tail came off his the machine was the one I was flying in the morning. In the afternoon, during the, doing that flight, the tail came off the aeroplane and Ken was killed. Um, the crash occurred somewhere near Staines and two bits of the machine, the two halves of the machine, were lying in the field. When I got there, Ken was being carried off in a blanket looking uh, anything but good. In fact, he was as dead as a doornail. And it was all rather traumatic. Um, at that time, uh, the typhoon was beginning to go into squadron service, and uh, there were one or two other incidents of the tail coming off. Did Philip mention this? By yes. Um, the and one went off, of course, and examined the wreckage in two halves. Um, with Hawkers, the project office, were completely baffled by this phenomenon. Um, <laughs> we went on testing at Langley. They thought at one time that it was the talk of the Saber engine at the front end, and um, there were tabs put on the rudder, uh, one bent starboard, the other bent port, with the idea of taking off, uh, reducing the torque effect. Well, this was all nonsense, really. It had nothing to do with it. The um, there was a, a the aeroplane was built in bits. The, the tail section was riveted onto the mid sort of monocoque section which was then fastened onto the center section and engine compartment. The um, <clears throat> they thought that it was the tra what called was called the transport port joint which was just forward of the tail tailplane and rudder assembly. And so they put some bracket some strengthening bits on riveted on. Well, when the tail came off next time, or the next one that happened, it came off just behind the cockpit. It wasn't the transport joint at all. And I remember Rochford, who was on the, um, he was the stress, he was a stress merchant in the office at Kingston, standing there with a sort of puzzled face, right, looking rather like a great Dane, a couple of bits of typhoon, back end and front end, saying, it can't have happened. I mean, it can't happen. And he was absolutely mystified. And so was everybody else. Ultimately, um, the uh, war was hotting up. Um, the tails off was an exception rather than a rule. And um, it was able to be put down to flak. 
uh, or some other cause. Uh, but there was nothing done about the typhoon at all at that time. Uh, there was nothing done about that problem. It just couldn't happen. And um, there were, in actual fact, of the whole lot, I think there were 58 cases of tails off, and in each case the pilot was killed. Um, this is an operational squadron. These were operational squadrons, and you'd get people doing, they, particularly, it was used a lot for uh, dive bombing the rocket sites in uh, northern France, uh, that sort of thing. And, of course, um, uh, you'd say we, somebody lo crashed during the operation, and um, they said it was flak, but in actual fact there was no flak. So um, they were tails off, and anyway, ultimately it was shown that 58 typhoon tails came adrift. Um, we then went on, I, I'm leaving the typhoon, and I'll come back to you in a moment, but we then went on to the Tempest, which was basically a typhoon with a um, new wing on it, a thinner wing. The typhoon uh, Mach number, critical Mach number, was about 0.72, and the Tempest wing, which looked rather like a, it was a Spitfire shaped, and it was very pretty, it became a very pretty aeroplane. Um, now, that had a Centaurus engine, did it? Or? No, that had a Sabre and a Centaurus. We had the Typhoon, the Tempest II was a, a, a Centaurus. The um, original Tempest V was a um, Sabre. But the mass balance arrangement on the Typhoon was, to go back to that for a moment, was a weight on the end of a lever. The idea being that the weight on the lever added up to what should have been in the leading edge of the tailplane as a normal mass balance. Uh, the Tempest had exactly the same mass balance arrangement, but whereas the Typhoon was a very coarse lady, she'd get stuck in spins if the, uh, if the CG was aft, and uh, she had this habit of losing her tail, but she was generally rough and thoroughly coarse. Um, the Tempest, which was very similar, except for the wing, was an absolute lady. It, it was a most delightfully well-mannered, well-behaved aeroplane. And uh, in a talk I gave to John Crampton, I described it in this way. I said it was the sort of thing, girl you could take to the Vickers Tea Party and she'd never put a foot wrong. Um, and yet the wing was the only difference. The, the wing difference. was basically the only difference. Um, the next sort of child, as it were, in this Typhoon, Tempest, Fury, P-1040 um, family was the Fury, which shouldn't be uh, modelled with the original biplane Fury before the war. And that really was a Tempest wing uh, with the centre section cut out, so that the span was reduced, and a new, but still Sydney Cam orientated aeroplane. The fuselage had a, was slightly different. It was basically the same fuselage, except the, uh, there was a bit of view over the nose, which you didn't get on the Tempest. 
that again had um, the same mass balance arrangement as the uh, Typhoon and Tempest for the elevator. Uh, and again, in my uh, talk with John Crampton on the four aeroplanes, whereas the Tempest was a perfectly behaved lady, um, the Fury was a very attractive little aeroplane, but was really uh, a bit of a coquette. And I said, if you took her to the Vickers Tea Party, she'd have his gaiters off in five minutes. Um, uh, but it was a ch she was a charming aeroplane to fly, but um, rather she had some funny little habits, like if you didn't land her very correctly, she'd try to dart off to one side or the other and get into the nearest ditch. Um, uh, she'd also um, flick if you um, pull her around the corner too fast and insufficient speed. The high speed store was quite uh, noticeable. But she was a lovely aeroplane to fly, and um, although she weighed about, um, I suppose, I can't remember how many, four tons, all up, I suppose, 10,000 pounds, um, about, when you flew, when you did aerobatics, and you felt they were flying a, a thing like an old Avro Cadet or something, which was a beautiful aeroplane to handle. How was the typhoon problem resolved? Are you coming the to that? typhoon problem was never resolved. I'm coming to it actually mm. somewhat <laughs> uh, <laughs> long ago. But the next aeroplane in line, which I had the honour of flying with a certificate around a coal mine and a current driving licence, was the prototype P1040, the first Hawker jet. And um, I've always felt that this was a tremendous milestone in my life because you um, you can only do there can only be one first of anything, particularly with aeroplanes. And the first Hawker jet I had first flights on. Incidentally, before getting down to the T P ten forty, Philip Lucas had retired from being chief test pilot, and I then. Uh, in uh, 1946, and so I then found myself chief test pilot of Hawkers, um, which I was terribly proud of. And then along came the P-1040, and so I had the honour of doing the first flight on the first Hawker jet, the first Hawker aeroplane that Cam had designed. Uh, the first flight was done at Boscombe Down, and um, it wasn't a particularly happy event. Uh, it was the 2nd of September 1947. Um, having got the thing off the ground, I selected wheels up and finished up with a red light on the nose wheel. Um, I then um, flew around the control tower of Boscombe and asked them to have a look what had happened and they said it had stuck on the way up, it, the wheel had gone crooked and so I thought well I'll get down and have this put right um, so I got on the circuit came into land and when I put the flaps down there was a terrific vibration uh, the whole aeroplane vibrated Anyway, the runway turned up before anything 
terrible happened, I landed. Oh, before that, of course, when I put the wheels down again, I got no green light for the nose wheel, having had a red light before. Anyway, I decided in the end that uh, we'd go down and risk it, that the thing was locked, and it was, because the green light came on as soon as we touched the ground. But there was this very bad vibration, and this was put down to the flaps, the turbulence from the flaps. Um, that was put right, and the wheel was put right, and we did some more flights at, uh, down at Boscombe until we decided to move our testing up to um, Farnborough. The Langley wasn't big enough for it, is it? No, Langley was not considered big enough. It was big enough as it happened, or would have been big enough, but um, it was much better if you've got 3,000 yards of runway at Farnborough, if that was the length. Um, and so we went on testing from there. The aeroplane um, was not a particularly happy thing to fly. Um, it had directional instability, which was due to the boundary uh, our, our bleeds uh, being emitted on the engine intake, the air intake for the engine. And so that was put right. Uh, that, that was overcome. But if you flew it at about 300 knots, and then started to turn, you've got a terrible vibration. Um, and if you continued to, continued to turn, the vibration increased. So being somewhat wise, I thought, and cautious, I didn't do a lot of turning. And it was the same whether it was to right or to left. And um, I couldn't put my finger on what it was. I knew the frequency. The frequencies, as I described it to the project office, was about um, what was known as a first air screw vibration on a hurricane, which was sort of the decking was doing that. Um, they were again bemused or uh, completely bemused by this thing. And being, I was then all alone. I didn't have any number two with me at that time, so I couldn't get an opinion there. And I remember suggesting to Cam that I got um, Winkle Brown, a naval test pilot at Farnborough, to have a go. And he was terribly reluctant uh, to um, agree to this. Anyway, I finally persuaded him. And uh, Winkle took the aeroplane up, very able pilot. And he said, it, it shakes like hell. And I said, well, do you know what it is? He said, no, I don't. Um, and then one day we had a, a bit of a conference of the project department. There was Robert Lickley there. Um, I can't remember who else was there, but there were about another two of them. And the reason they were there was for, so that I could sort this vibration out. And I took the aeroplane off. And I don't really know why I did it, but I did. I put the thi I got the thing up to about 300 knots, which wasn't difficult because it was capable of about 500 knots in level flight, if you could have ever got it, that thing. But we hadn't had it fast at that time. And I put on about 45 degrees bank, then left the stick alone, took my hands off, and wound on 
the tail trimmer to initiate the turn. And I saw the stick start to move, and the stick was moving like that, and went on moving like that. And so I, find, I grasped the stick firmly, and that damped down the vibration a bit. But if I carried on with the turn, increasing the G, um, the stick continued to vibrate. And uh, I tried another one or two turns similarly to be sure that I was not, uh, that I'd got the thing right. And then I went back in Farnborough and landed. And um, there they were, Robert Lickley and the rest of the project people were there. And they said, well, I, I said, I've got it. And they said, well, what is it? I said, it's elevator flutter. And you remember those cartoons, Bateman cartoons, the guardsman who dropped it and the, um, the dandelion on the centre court of Wimbledon. I felt exactly like the subject of a Bateman drawing because they all stood up together and they looked at me as much as I'd crawled out from under a bloody stone and said, my dear chap, we knew all about elevator flutter in 1917. But they then... I then had to take a fury out to Cairo to do a demonstration. And when I got back, um, I went to see the, ma the managing, uh, managing director of Hawkers, who messaged say, would I go and see him? And, um, who was that at the time? That was uh, uh, Robbie uh, Robertson, T.D.M. Robertson, a charming character. And he said, um, uh, hello, and I said, hello. And he said, well, look, the sales manager's just left. Frank Lloyd had gone to de Havilland's. Um, would you like to be sales manager? And I said, yes. And frankly, thinking about it, uh, I'd done, then done about eight years testing uh, with a few false landings and various things were going on. And um, uh, I said, yes, I would. And it was really rather as though I was in, sitting in the condemned cell and the governor of the prison had come in and said, it's okay, humble, you've been reprieved. And the relief was enormous, because by that time my nerve was pretty well shot. Anyway, I became sales manager. But was, was, it, was it the, now then, the 1040 that demoralised you? No, it wasn't. No, I mean, it was just the fact that we'd been... Uh, one had had the, the, the pent-up fear, which you get, you know, it drives you. It's, it's fun, I mean, it makes you go, but uh, you tighten your nerves up and then you relax them. You tighten your nerves up, relax them. And this had been going on for eight years, and I felt enormous relief. Of course, having decided to be sales manager and had the enormous relief, I then wanted to fly again. But anyway, it was too late. However, the, um, the message got, got through to the project office, the fact that it was elevator flutter, and they, incidentally, the um, 1040 had exactly the same mass balancing arrangement of the Typhoon, of the typhoon Tempest and Fury, uh, a weight on the end of a lever. Anyway, they decided to do, do away with that, and they put the mass balance in the leading edge of the elevator where it should be. And um, Wimpy Wade had then taken over from me and uh, was going on with the 1040, and one day he said, um, I think we've got it right, would you like to take the prototype down to Boscombe Down? It's going to see what, you know, how it goes. And so I did it, uh, did it. And of course the thing was a dream. I went off, to, took off from Farnborough, 
kept the throttle open, I was doing 500 miles an hour indicated flat uh, on the level, quite low altitude, terribly exciting, and then you could bang it into a turn, and uh, there was absolutely no vibration at all. And it was elevator flutter. And if you go back through the um, uh, four aeroplanes, there's no doubt about it in my mind that the typhoon was elevator flutter. But it was the exception rather than the rule. On the 1040, it was the rule. You could get it any time you liked. And yet you didn't have it on the Tempest and the Fury? There was none on the Tempest, none on the Fury. But there's no doubt about it that if you really, uh, to wrench an aeroplane apart, must, there must be some terrific stresses put on it. And the only things that could put terrific stress on a Typhoon or any other aeroplane is if either you get violent elevator or violent rudder flutter. Well, it wasn't the rudder, certainly. Philip had a, a go with that, and the fuselage cracked uh, down the side, and he landed. He got the GM for it. He landed as opposed to bailing out, which he probably ought to have done. Uh-huh. But it was elevator flutter. And I think now that I heard recently, I sort of service engineer of Hawkers happened to call on me when I was in Spain and um, he, he, it was he who said there were 58 had lost their tails and they now agreed that all along it was elevator flutter. And yet it was a and very very successful ground attack aeroplane wasn't it? It was a successful aeroplane. I don't know how many were built I suppose two or three thousand and there were 58 lost their tails so it was very much the exception but it was still fatal for the chaps who were flying it at right. the time. Mm. And um, if one has any criticism at all, is the is is, is the fact that um, particularly a single seater fighter, you're the only chap that can convey anything to the project office, and they were so absolutely adamant that their knowledge of aerodynamics uh, was impeccable, and that nothing they did uh, could go wrong. Well, it did go wrong, and it, mm-hmm. the. I think probably when the, tele- the typhoon elevator decided to flutter, it would do so, um, it would probably build up to a maximum dimension in probably a second, and uh, the tail was off and you were dead. Uh, during the period, just after Ken was killed, I kept getting rung up by the project office in Kingston saying, um, we think it comes off in a 4G turn to starboard or something like that. Would you just nip up and see? And so you nipped up and saw, knowing perfectly well that if you, if they were right, you were dead. Uh, anyway, one went back and rang them up and said, well, actually, no, you were wrong. It, it, has, it doesn't come off then. And of course, I, I never had the effect. I mean, if you, had the, if you experienced it, you were dead, that's for sure. The, the mass balanced uh, in the Typhoon was fitted exactly where? It was in the fuselage? Well, it, it was on a lever attached to the uh, tube which formed, if you like, the main spar of the elevator. Fl- a- elevator. Mm. And uh, it, was, it, was, it did that, you see. Instead of the weight being back and distributed along the leading edge of the elevator, as it should have been, mm. Um, so you had a pendulum? You had a, well it, it was a weight on the end of a lever, this mm-hmm. way up, not mm-hmm. that way, a pendulum mm-hmm. would be that way. Mm-hmm. And it was the fact that, I, mean, I remember Ro- uh, going back to Rochford, he was standing there looking at this thing with this puzzled look on his face, and it seems he said, it can't happen. 
And he was right, it couldn't happen unless you had some terrific violence to rip the thing apart. Aerodynamic provocation, in other words. I don't know if that's a good word for it. <laughs> it I mean, it, it, it was, it, looking back on it, with hindsight, it was mm. absolutely easy, but uh, I never saw, thought of it, and neither did anybody else. Because the irony was that if, if uh, they designed the P-1040 with a straight-through jet exhaust instead of a little bifurcated outlet, they, would, they, they wouldn't have had room for the, the mass balance in its conventional position, would they? If the, if, um, no, they wouldn't. You're, you're quite right. I know, so they wouldn't have had the problem on You're them. quite right. Or whether they'd have made room for it, I don't yeah. know. They were so pig-headed about it. Of course, the whole idea of the, uh, the mass balance being on a lever was that there was less overall weight. Mm. Uh, and uh, the... Um, but they were adamant, you see. They just mm. couldn't be wrong. Yeah. Um, the typhoon, actually, going back to that aeroplane, they, um, that really was a pig. If you took it up, uh, if you had the CG in the aft position and you took it out to about 20,000 feet and put it into a spin, uh, as you went in, as the machine stalled and you put on full rudder to initiate the spin, the um, stick would come back hard into your stomach and you then knew you were in trouble. And there was nothing you could do. You wanted two hands on the stick to get it forward you get the opposite rudder on, and the thing would go on spinning very violently, too. And there was no sign of it coming out. Um, and just when you were beginning to think it was time you got out, which was going to be extremely difficult anyway because of the cockpit, um, the thing came out on its own at about 8,000 feet, eight or 7,000 feet. And it was the sort of thing you did to people. Uh, Sammy Roth, who was the, um, in charge of the flight at Boscombe Down, um, was the first chap to put it into a spin and get stuck. And then Philip did it, and he got stuck. And so he told Ken to go and try. Knowing perfectly well he gets stuck in. And um, so he did it and got stuck in. And then, of course, the next chap in line was me. And so he said, just go up and see what you think of this. Well, it was horrific, but um, it really was a bag, that aeroplane. It was rough and coarse. Mm. Was it just the higher cue that, that um, pulled it out of its spin when you got to I don't, I down don't know. It just, yeah. I suppose it was probably, yes, it was probably a fair density or something. Mm. Tell me a bit about the various characters that you've met, you know, through your career. I mean, uh, when, when you... There was George Bullman who George, was... Uh, well, George Bullman was great fun, as uh, evidenced by my um, what he said to me when I first arrived, or before I'd actually got employed by Hawkers. Uh, when I said, well, really, I'm a coal miner, and he said, oh, you're just the sort of chap we want. Um, Philip I was very fond of. I, in fact, I was very fond of everybody. They were all very, very nice to me. Um, there was one... Again, one trait uh, which went through Hawkers, uh, which was evidenced by the fact that, for instance, Cam um, didn't want the 1040 flown by anybody else in case they found some frightful bug in it. By anybody, when it was by anyone, outside anyone else the outside the company. And uh, remember, Philip was... Uh, when we did uh, the Fiori prototype arrived, um, Philip was chief test pilot, and therefore he did the first flights on it. And um, 
he did about a couple, I suppose, and then he said to me, you have a go and see what you think. And so I, off I went and whizzed around, and that was fine, and then I came into land. And as I was holding off during the landing, the starboard wing suddenly stalled, and it was lucky that I was fairly reasonably close to the ground because the thing stayed on its wheels. But the, there was a vicious stall um, on the starboard wing just as it, you reached the stalling point. And uh, when I came in, Philip was standing there, and everybody they all sort of thought everything was marvellous, and so it was, I suppose, and it was all great fun. And Philip said, what do you think of it? Expecting me to say, absolutely marvellous, oh boy, absolutely marvellous. And I said, it's a lethal little bastard. And he said, what the hell do you mean you can't say that? And uh, so I said, but the stall on the starboard wing, it's, it'll trap all sorts of people. And um, it... it we took it down. We took the ferry down to Boscombe Down during this period, and John Boodman flew it. Philip wanted him to have a go at it, and um, Philip and I were watching him as he came into land, and he did a, a really good wheeler, going quite fast. And as the speed dropped off, you could see the machine suddenly sort of snap down on the starboard side as the stall came on. And the reason was uh, the reason for it was the fact that the oil cooler was in the root of the starboard wing, and the propeller, looking from the pilot's cockpit, was anti-clockwise, so that the airflow was tending to come up over the starboard wing where it was in the slipstream and down on the port one, port side. And um, the solution was dead easy. We simply moved the uh, oil cooler from the starboard wing route to the port wing route and the thing fell on the ground absolutely dead level and you could store it, there was no, no store ahead of the thing but um, when I said I thought it was a lethal little bastard, it was the fact that I dared to criticise one of the company's products or find fault with it and this was most noticeable and uh, you weren't allowed to say anything against them not while you were employed anyway <laughs> How did you get on with the Sydney Cam? Did you see him? Oh, I got on very well with him. Um, probably due to the fact that my background in mining, etc., where there were people called uh, a spade a spade and a shovel a shovel, and Sydney was very similar. He was a great prima donna, really. And um, he was... I enjoyed him. I only had one uh, slight um, altercation if you like with him, it was when we were flying the 1040 down at Farnborough and he turned up. Uh, there was ten tenths low cloud over Farnborough, the sun was sinking in the west and there was rain all over the place and the aeroplane was in trouble with this bloody vibration we hadn't sorted that out. And the last thing I wanted to do was find myself in the aeroplane with failing light and rain and all the rest of it. And Sidney came up to me and he said, why aren't you flying? And I said, if you want it flown, fly the something thing yourself. And he said, oh, well, if that's what you feel about it, perhaps you'd better not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that was the only time. We, otherwise, we got on extremely well. Can you recall any amusing incidents? 
you know, not necessarily with, with him, but with, with your colleagues? Or I'd have to think rather carefully. I can't just put it. They were all bloody amusing. I mean, the whole thing, I loved uh, the eight years I had flying for Hawkers. I had a most wonderful time. It was a lovely, lovely time. And there were nasty incidents, Ken being killed. And, uh, you know, the whole thing was, to me, lovely. But it wasn't until I finished, uh, as I say, when the chap said, would you like to be a civil manager, that I realised that the tension that one was under. Mm. You suddenly realised there was a bill to pay for all those years. Oh, yes, I yeah. mean, there's, there's no doubt it. about it. Uh, it, it um, and uh, there was another evidence of that. We had um, um, a number two uh, uh, who was with me during the build-up to the um, fl first flight of the 1040. And um, he uh, walked into my office one day and uh, said, I quit. I can't do it anymore. And he was quite young. And uh, he'd obviously had a bloody awful night and he was, his nerve had completely gone. And it, I look back into his past. He'd had a very rough time at the beginning of the war on Blenheim's. Um, he'd then gone on to um, Spitfires on PRU. And um, where you were sitting alone for a long time under high nervous tension. And then he became, he was uh, uh, trained by the Boscombe Ground Test Pilot School. And he was a superb test pilot. I mean, his, his um, approach to the problem and his reporting was wonderful. Who was that? Um, I don't know whether I should say. <laughs> I mean, he 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 was. Um, it was tragic in a way. He he'd just gone. Mm. He was a very sensitive character anyway. Yeah. But he suddenly decided, and I I thought it was tremendously courageous to come in and say, "Look, I quit. I can't do, I can't do this anymore." And uh, Wimpy, who followed me, Wimpy Wade followed uh, him rather. Uh, I had to get another pilot who would, who'd had jet experience because they weren't they weren't sort of falling off the trees in those days and um, Wimpy Wade joined me well I'd finished then and I was out in Cairo but he didn't he only lasted about two years and uh, we developed a sweat wing version of the 10 of 14 and um, he took it up to about 30,000 feet rolled it onto his back and decided to see, go supersonic. And of course, when he went supersonic, it wouldn't come out of the dive. And when he got down to about 10,000 feet, the ground was coming up bloody fast and there was no sign of anything happening. And so he ejected and was killed on the ejection. And the aeroplane then decided to come out of the dive on its own. And somebody told me at Hawkers afterwards that um, if a tree hadn't got in the way, there would have been very little damage. It did quite a good bit of landing on its own. Mm. And um, <coughs> uh, I think that, uh, frankly, I think Wimpy was um, was overstressed at that time. He'd had a, it was the end of the war and he'd only gone through this business of being terrified. A lot of fear attached to it. And if anybody says, you know, uh, the gallant pilots and all that sort of thing, um, have you read Cocky Dundas's book, First Flight? No, I haven't. Well, it's very good. I knew him quite well. I knew him very well, in fact. 
but um, he really literally seemed to go through the war on a series of bottles of brandy. And he admits in his book that there's fearful fear that you get, and it's with you all the time, and you've simply got to master it until finally because, you, yeah, sorry. you can't uh, master it anymore. Mm. It's interesting, the coincidence of the war, because there was a terri terribly high casualty rate among test pilots just after the war with, with, with the jet and the problems of compressibility and all the new problems that That's were coming right. up. And um, I've never thought about it before that nearly all these test pilots have been through the stress of the war years as well. Oh, yeah, um, well, you know, yeah, so somehow the war, I mean, if anybody asked me now whether I, you know, what do I think of the war, I'd say, well, I had an absolute whale of a good mm. time. I thought it was a bloody marvellous experience, and it was. Um, but thinking of someone like John Derry, for instance. Oh, boy, I knew him well. Yeah. He's such a nice Lovely chap. Man. And, uh, well, anyway, his end was swift. Mm. But there are a whole lot. And you see, Je Geoffrey now, Geoffrey de Havilland was... Uh, a great chap, he boozed, he was a great chap with the girls and he flew like a bloody demon and um, I remember just before he was killed we were doing an SBAC show at um, Radlett and he came up to me and said, um, he was then flying the Swallow by the way and uh, he came up to me and said, where's the nearest loo? and uh, I said I don't know I think it's in the control tower why and he said these bloody shows get me and I realized then that he was absolutely shot and of course afterwards the reason he was killed was really I think because his nerve was at the cracking point because he was to go and try and test the swallow at a high Mac number and he did it uh, at sort of not ground level but very low down and the wings came off at minus 9G and he was killed. Well, Derry went up afterwards and uh, repeated the affair, but he was up at 30,000 odd feet, so the air loads were not such to um, pull the wings off or anything mm. like that. Mm. And it was a affair that he, Geoffrey, uh, he, the job was, he had to do, the, he got the job to do, and he couldn't wait to get it done, so he couldn't have bothered, or he wasn't going to go up high to do it. He just wanted to get it over quickly. And it got over him. During my period in, uh, with Hawkers, and also before, I met um, a very big cross-section of the industry, um, starting with the old pioneers. Um, I knew Bob Blackburn very well when I was flying in Yorkshire as a private pilot before the war. And um, um, I used to go to Bruff for my reserve training, so I used to see him there a lot. And I knew old um, Handy Page uh, very well, who was a wonderful after-dinner speaker. Um, I also knew Sir Tom Sopwith very well, who died the other day, aged 101. I used to fly him around at Hawkers quite a bit. I was sort of acting as a safety pilot. He used to fly the Whitney Strait, and we used to go off to board meetings in the Midlands or wherever. And um, I, he used to take off and fly and land, but he was pretty rough but probably one would expect that because he really hadn't flown since the very, very early days. 
and I also met uh, quite obviously a lot of the test pilots in industry uh, during my time and there's only really one thing I can say about them all is that they were all very very nice people um, <coughs> I used to uh, go shooting with uh, Tom Sopwith quite a bit uh, he was a very, very kind gentleman. I was just thinking as to why on earth he bothered with me. I was a test pilot earning, when I first went to Hawkers, 600 a year. And um, uh, when, after a week of shooting in Yorkshire, um, I had to tip the butler, which in those days he got a fiver. But the irony of the thing was that uh, he was earning 1250 a year, all fine. And as I say, I was on 600. But still, it was all life and it, it was great fun. I'll just tell you a story uh, which is absolutely true and it's something which is not about personalities at all but um, I was, we were on Tempest at the time and I think the date, the year would be about 1943. Um, when we started uh, flying the Tempest, the prototypes, the Orans were very heavy and um, the project office at Kingston thought up spring tabs and to cut a long story short from that point of view, they were a great success. Um, I was due to fly, uh, I was asked to fly the Tempest by the project office at uh, its critical Mach number at about 20,000 feet and apply full aileron. And this job was scheduled for 10 o'clock one morning. To divert a moment from this part of the story, I suddenly realized that I was sitting in a tempest, the engine had stopped, the flaps were down, the wheels were up and I was approaching a dark coloured field in which I was going to force land. It was rather gloomy, the whole outlook was very, very gloomy, dark and dismal. Anyway, I came in over the hedge, uh, hit the ground flat and I was surprised at the smoothness of the ride. The um, actually on the Tempest it had a big four-bladed propeller on and when you landed, belly landed, which I did on one or two occasions, the propeller used to get bent back under the leading edge of both both sides of the engine cowling as well and act as a sort of skid. Anyway, I was, the one thing I noticed about this particular landing was that it was very, very smooth. And I thought, right, this, I must, you know, remember this, quite a fact. Anyway, the machine ground to a halt quite quickly. And um, I looked round, and there were about half a dozen people running towards me across the field. Uh, at that point, I woke up. I look at my watch, and it was six o'clock in the morning. And um, I keep thinking I'm talking to that instead of to you. <laughs> um, at 10 o'clock that morning, I went to sleep again, got myself out of bed later. 
and at 10 o'clock that morning I was due to take this tempest up to do this job on the Adrons at about 20,000 feet. Uh, the cloud base was about 2,000, 10 tenths. It wasn't raining, visibility was good, so I thought, well, there's no problem here. And there was no problem in getting back to the aerodrome because we were flying a balloon barrage at that time as a form of protection, and the balloons invariably stuck above the clouds, so you knew exactly where your base was, even if you were above cloud. Um, at about, uh, I don't know, quarter to ten or something, I walked out from the experimental department to the production end where this aeroplane was standing. And um, I got there a bit early and the chaps were still having tea with the, um, uh, in the sort of flight shed foreman's office. And so I went in and uh, Pete Lemon was the flight shed foreman. He, he looked up and said, do you want to go now? So I said, no, there's plenty of time, Have finish your tea and we'll go and you'll finish. And um, so I sat down and in the five minutes that elapsed before tea break ended, I told them about the dream. I said I had a funny dream last night. I was in a tempest, force landing, wheels up, flaps down, engine kaput, and um, there it was. And uh, the five minutes was up. And uh, I, then, I then went out to the aeroplane with a chap by the name of Bill Carr who was tucked me in and got my parachute on and all that sort of thing. And um, I started up, ran up, took off through the balloon barrage lane which we had in it so that we'd get out and do flying when, it, uh, when the balloons were flying. And we um, um, took off towards the southwest keeping low under the cloud, and then turned to starboard, round the balloon barrage, onto a northerly course. And as soon as I was satisfied that all was well, I pulled up into cloud and went on with my job up to 20,000 feet. A few, I probably, I don't know, the cloud was about uh, 2,000 foot thick. It was quite heavy cloud, may have been a bit more. But in a f 15 seconds or so, I was out of the top of the cloud like a champagne cork. And there was, as far as I could see, a vast white plain of bubbly cloud stretching as far as the eye could see. And above me was this magnificent blue dome. And I was entirely alone. It was a wonderful feeling. Anyway, I settled in the cloud. And, um, as I got to about 16,000 feet, there was a slight puff of vapour when it seemed to go near, over the hood. And uh, I looked around at the instruments and I found the uh, coolant temperature gauge. It was going up like a rocket and it very soon went off the clock and uh, the engine started to seize. Um, at that time, uh, we had, uh, as a form of direction finding, we used to work with North Holt. Uh, there was none at Langley, and uh, all we had there was a two-way radio, but it was simply to let them know what was going on, and they weren't able really to assist in any way. Um, so there I was at 16,000 feet, 
with no um, engine, very much alone in this magnificent with, with this ma- in this magnificent blue dome, and the, underneath this lovely white cloud top. So I called um, North Holt and said, um, "I'm." had engine failure, can you give me a fix? I don't know what good it would have done me, but it seems to be the thing to do. And they came back and said, frankly sorry, one of our fixer stations is out of action. We'll try and get it going. And I said, well, you'll have to hurry up because I have no means of staying up here. And uh, so I started to glide down. And um, nothing happened from North Hoves. I rang them up, I called them up again and said, you know, how are you doing? I'm still up here, but it's not going to last very much longer. What can you do? And they said, I'm frightfully sorry, it's still out of action, we can't do anything. So I called Langley, uh, on their, anyway, they'd been listening to me, they knew, they knew they were on the North Hope frequency anyway, but I called them, so they knew what was happening. And I said, I'm, um, I've got engine failure, and I'm going down and I'll um, let you know, and you know, I'll give you a ring and ask you uh, in due course where you can come and get me from. And um, down I went, that was the end of the thing. I told Langley, I rang Langley again just before I entered the top of the cloud and said, I'm only going to cloud now, I'll have to do a wheel stop landing when I get out of the bottom in whatever it was. Anyway, we sunk through the cloud and uh, it got slowly darker and darker as we went down and finally there was a real splurge of darkness below us as the land came into view and I was out of cloud. It was really quite gloomy, very similar. I'd been here before, six o'clock in the morning. The engine was not working, it had failed. I was sitting in a Tempest cockpit. Uh, I hadn't got the flaps down at that point. Ahead of me there was a dark coloured field. And I went uh, towards it, I flew towards it, positioned myself, lowered the flaps, knocked off a bit of height, came in over the hedge, and put her onto the ground flat at about 120 miles an hour, in view of uh, whatnots, advisors, speed never kills. The only thing I um, noted was different uh, was the fact that the, dry, the ride then was very rough. Uh, we bounced along and at one point the radiator caught on a lump of uh, a bank or something in the middle of this field and I thought she was going over on her back but she didn't and the radiator came adrift and I could feel it bumping along for a fraction of a second underneath the fuselage. And, um, the whole thing, in the end, it ground to a halt, rather more quickly than in the dream. And I shook myself, looked around, and there were half a dozen people running towards me across the field. And it was an extraordinary thing. I, the dream, it was an exact re- replica of the dream which I'd had at six o'clock. The, um, incidentally, I forgot to mention, as I came into land in the dream, there was a hut on the right, on my left-hand side, 
and uh, as I came into land in the uh, actual incident, there was a hut on the right-hand side, and the people ran towards me in the dream from the left-hand side, and in the incident they ran towards me from the right-hand side, so it was a sort of mirror image of the dream. And um, of course back at Langley they heard the trauma going on, and uh, Pete Lemon went up into the radio tower where there was a chap by the name of Sid Harbour was the radio operator. And he was down, of course, having tea with the chaps when I was telling the original story. And Pete w went up to the radio and he, they said, you know, what's going on? And Sid Harbour told him and he said, that'll teach the bugger to dream. <laughs> <laughs> I only had I only had two wheel up, wheels up landings, mm. actually, in Tempest. That was one. And then I had another one at a little aerodrome near Henley. Mm -hmm. I got in. Philip and I were flying two versions of the Tempest and he thought he was in the faster one and I was supposed to keep station with him. I don't know how the hell we were going to compare the speeds. It was all very rough and ready. But during one of these runs um, my engine stopped and I peeled away and Philip apparently uh, looked over his shoulder as he saw me go and he thought, oh, to hell with him. He's always impatient. He can't wait to do anything. <laughs> but I had no option. Anyway, below me was a little aerodrome, a Henley, a training aerodrome. And I wasn't, I was obviously not going to get in with the wheels down. I would certainly have overrun. So I decided to go in on my belly and I came in and shoved the thing down on its belly and it was a very smooth grass field, and of course, as soon as the propeller blades got tucked underneath the leading edge of the wing, it was like being in a toboggan, and we went on and on and on. And I wish I said the thing saying, I wish the bloody thing would stop. It did in the end before it reached the hedge, but it seemed to go on forever. <laughs> Just looking at that range of aeroplanes, um the Fury was never adopted by the RAF, was it? it no, it, it, it was never. Yeah. It, really, it was really Sydney Cam's, Cam's answer to the 109, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the Focke-Wulf 190 rather, not mm -hmm. the 109, the Focke-Wulf 190. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I flew the 190, uh, a German pilot uh, over England got himself on the wrong reciprocal or he flew north when he should have flown south and finished up on an aerodrome in Cardiff and that machine went down to Farnborough and uh, Willie was still there, Willie Wilson my friend was still there as chief test pilot and he said would you like to have a go? So I did. <coughs> I must admit it was a it was a pretty rough little aeroplane and um, I would imagine that the Germans must have had quite a lot of um, accidents with it through the fact that it was if anything a slightly tricky little thing to fly. It used to, um, it, it again, rather like the Fiori in a way, but I think it more so uh, um, had a vicious stall. It, it went straight, uh, gyrated immediately on the stall and used to flick. Um, and there were quite a lot of um, uh, combat reports which I saw where with typhoons when they were in action. Um, the, the 190s used to do these 
nuisance raids on the south coast. They'd whiz in, and the typhoons had the speed of them, and so they used to chase them off out to sea again. And um, on these combat reports, the typhoon pilot would be behind some way, and he'd give the uh, 109 a bit of a squirt uh, with the cannon, and as soon as he saw the shells going over him, if they didn't have to hit him, he'd go into a turn, and then, of course, the range immediately closed in. And the um, uh, typhoon started to turn as well, and the 190 started to turn. Well, the typhoon could turn inside a 109 with the greatest of ease. And, of course, the typhoon used to tighten up its turn. Never had to bother to fire its guns. And the 109 used to tighten up still more until he finally flicked and went into the ground. The 190, you mean? I mean, the 190, sorry. Mm. Mm. He, he went straight into the ground. Really? And quite a lot of them ne 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 never fired their guns at all. The, the typhoon simply, the chap just spun in, flicked and went in. Can you tell me um, a little more about the, the sort of famous names of the time? I, I believe you, you knew Geoffrey de Havilland. Yes, well, yes, I knew really all the chaps. Being as we were on fighters, um, they were mainly uh, the opposite numbers of the other companies, uh, the test pilots. Um, I knew Geoffrey very well, and John de Havilland, who was killed in a mosquito collision. And there was a great character by the name of Bruce Campbell at um, uh, de Havilland's, who was a very hard-drinking gentleman. The Gloucester crowd was Jerry Sayer. He was, I think, in actual fact, uh, he was one of the older test pilots. He was flying long before I went there. He was, I think, um, a victim of a tails-off uh, thing in a typhoon because Gloucesters were building typhoons at the time. And Jerry went up to North Country somewhere. I don't know where it was. It was off the north coast of... Uh, it was off the east coast of Northumberland and uh, where they were uh, doing some out-of-ground out firing. And Jerry went off in a typhoon and he disappeared into the sea. He wasn't seen again. Um, I wouldn't be at all surprised. There was no reason why he should have done it. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if he wasn't a question, it wasn't a question of the elevator flowed and the tail came off the machine and he went into the drink and nobody actually happened to see it at the time because the target would be at the sea and somebody may not have been looking, but it wouldn't be surprised me at all that he's because there's no reason why he should have dived straight into the sea. Mm -hmm. Absolutely none. Because he first flew the, the, the first jet in 2839, didn't he? The first Whittle. No, I, no, that was Mike Daunt. Jerry, Jerry by the time that was flown, no, really? Jerry Sayer was dead. I thought he did the first flight of it only, and then Mike Daunt took it over. No, Mike, was, I'm, I'm yeah. sure Mike did it, mm. because mm. I remember his story about it very well indeed. Mm. Mm. Um, oh, Philip, it's finding the the jet, really, um, or the arrival of the jet, as uh, Philip Lucas said when he'd flown one or two and came back full of enthusiasm, was that um, you fly f through the air with the greatest of ease, and one did. It, uh, there was no swing on takeoff, um, and the thing was dead smooth, and in, in the case of a lot of them, the Vampire particularly, on the single engine one and the P-1040, the engine was tucked away behind you, and um, 
they were beautifully quiet. And of course they were terribly easy because you had a magnificent view forward. And um, throttle response was a bit slow, wasn't it, compared to a prop? Didn't you find it there? No, I never noticed it um, particularly. Uh, I flew a meteor. Uh, one of the one of the Whittle, uh, one of the meteors was powered by two Whittle jets, which were the same as the, uh, in the on the Gloucester one, which is single engine one. And I flew that at Farnborough, and I must admit that did lack in uh, a good deal of power. And I, uh, Willie gave me due warning the fact that it wasn't exactly didn't exactly rocket into the air. So I took the full length of the run, and we were then coming up towards the, um, I was taking off towards the uh, mess and the hangar end, and I feel that I only really just got off uh, and just cleared the buildings. I was, uh, uh, there, was there was very little power, you wanted a very long run for that machine. But the um, uh, Neen, I think it was, in the 1040, uh, that had plenty of power. You went off very well with that. Acceleration was good. And it was, as I say, once we got the... Um, the only time I flew it when it was a decent flying machine, when the um, mass balance was in the leading edge of the elevator, as opposed to on a, this fearful weight on a lever, which caused so much trouble, to the typhoon anyway and to me in the initial flights of the 1040. Um, in fact, it, it, it was that was the fastest I've ever gone in level flight on the trip down from Farnborough to Boscombe. It, I got 500 and it was terrible. I found it very exhilarating. They were, um, they were the, the, the single engine jets anyway, were a piece of cake to fly, no problem. Well, the problem, I suppose the problem was really the fact that you went to Bellyside faster than you'd ever gone before, and um, if you didn't watch out, you got yourself lost. <laughs> Did you have a chance to um, handle it fully once it had been modified to get rid of it? No, 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 I, I simply, no, I never went to You the, didn't aerobat it at all? Or? Oh, no. No. No, no, I simply took it down there. My day, aerobatic days were over almost. I simply took it down to uh, Boscombe and enjoyed the fact um, it, it went like a bomb and uh, all the shake had gone out of it because of it. incidentally Wimpy who was a press on character when we were trying to find out why he'd arrived on the scene and he being a chap of firm intent or wild intent um, decided to see how far he could go with the shake and uh, he held it in the turn sufficiently long time for the blind flying pa panel to come adrift and it cracked him over the shins, for which he richly deserved for overdoing it. <laughs> now he succeeded you. Did, did you personally recruit him or...? Um... Yes. Mm. Um, I knew him. I mean, I'd seen him around a bit and uh, I wanted somebody with jet experience, which I had none. And he had jet experience. Where'd he got it? God knows. I mm. can't remember now. All I'd done, all I, the only thing I'd flown, I had a, a whiz round in a meter at Gloucester and um, the uh, rather 
nasty experience of the Whittle engine jet at Farnborough. And I flew in a Vampire, which was a lovely little aeroplane. Um, very similar in sort of, uh, I mean, when you sat in the cockpit of Vampire or the 1040, uh, there wasn't a great deal of difference because it was just, you were just up in the nose and everything else was behind you, and so you really didn't see any difference. Mm. Um, no, that, the 1040 was really the end of my uh, testing career, anyway. And Neville Duke came on the scene after you'd left? Neville, you? Neville Duke followed Wimpy mm -hmm. and did The Hunter. And uh, he was a, I, I'm very fond of Neville, he was a charming character. A very unassuming man, great chap. The, another th thing of Neville, he still holds the record uh, for um, a single-engined, piston-engined uh, machine from London to Karachi. Um, I was sitting in my office when I was supposed to be sales manager one day, and I saw sitting in the grass, the long grass at the end of Langley, um, one of the prototype Fort Furies. And um, uh, I got hold of our contracts chap and said, look, there's this Fury to, uh, 802 is the number, I think, and um, it's sitting out there. Let's get it back from the ministry, buy it back from the ministry. And uh, we did, and um, we uh, bought it back for 250 pounds. And then I rang up the um, um, air attaché, I don't think he was air attaché, he was our, our liaison officer of the Pakistan um, Air Force in London, and said, would you like, they, they, we was, We'd sell them some Furies, and we were at that time delivering them out there. They were coming off the line. I said, would you like a Fury cheap? And uh, he said, what do you mean cheap? I said, well, say, 10,000 delivered Karachi. And he said, I'll just get on to, I'll just signal Karachi and see what they say. So he did do, and he came back and he said, yes, we'll have it, please. And um, so um, it was given a coat of paint, and Neville threw it out. Uh, with the idea of doing a record run, and I think he went um, Heathrow, Malta, Malta, Nicosia, Nicosia, Bahrain, Bahrain, Karachi, and he did the whole thing in 15 hours, uh, flying at about um, the max power height uh, for max cruise conditions in the um, high blower. I think he was flying at about 20,000 feet or so. And he was, cru he was cruising, so-called, it must have been more like full speed, um, for 15 hours at about um, 400 odd miles an hour, would you get. Was that with drop tanks? Oh, yes. Mm. So even with the extra drag? Yes, well, I flew, I took quite a lot of theories out to Baghdad and Karachi. Uh, when I wanted to go down to Karachi to see them, I used to, it's still working, is it? Mm. Uh, I used to take one out and, um, you could fly, I used to do very much similar trip to Neville. I'd fly from, try to fly Black Bush we left from, from instead of Heathrow, and then down to Malta, um, stay the night at the Phoenicia, and then next day fly across to Nicosia, that was a thousand miles of sea, 
the Centaurus engine wasn't terribly reliable, so that was a fairly hazardous uh, trip. I never fell in the sea, but one always had that in mind. And then um, I don't know whether it was the sea was any uh, less hospitable, frankly, than the South Baluchistan coast along which one used to fly. But you could fly Nicosia to Bahrain, I think it's about 1,200 miles, uh, with two drop tanks. 